to know if I... Did you?
Well, good morning. It's a particularly good morning to come out because imagine if all this rain was snow. Here we are. I hope you've had a good Thanksgiving. I'm going to ask, ladies, if you would join me here. We're going to, it's the first Sunday in Advent. And so we'll have a reading and a lighting of the candle. Remember, Advent is about preparation and being part of the journey. Uh, our readings this year will go through the book of Isaiah. And we'll start. As we enter the season of Advent, celebrating the promised one, Jesus, who has come and is coming again, we light candles each week to remind us of the gifts we have been given in our Lord and Savior Jesus. On this first Sunday of Advent, we light the candle of hope, remembering the words of Isaiah 2, 2 through 5. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains. All the nations shall stream to it. Amen. Amen. It worked perfectly. <laughs> Thank you. For Bach Sunday, we sang this hymn. I wanted to sing it again, the text from Martin Luther, but it speaks of the coming king. Let's stand and sing together. It's hymn number 74, Savior of the Nations Come. Amen. Have a seat if you would, please. Thank you. It's good to welcome each of you here as we worship together, uh, sharing life and love as Christ has poured it out. And also those of you who open your space to us, either on, online by a live stream or by recording, thank you that what God is doing here, you've welcomed into your space and time as well. So it's good to be together. Um, I'll save a lot of questions. Mary Lynn is substituting in the nursery. We had a sickness there, so she's uh, stepped forward. She's part of the backup and the rotation for that. I'm glad to have her apart with things. Um, after the service this morning, 
I'm going to take a break from my usual post-service fellowship and looking to spend more time with people. We will have a coffee fellowship for things. I hope it's been a good week for you. I know holidays are often kind of fraught with changes and memories and all sorts of things. But we gathered Thursday to remember Thanksgiving. We did that with communion. Uh, today we're uh, finishing up our uh, receiving of the Neighbors Plus grocery bags. You know, part of what the gospel does is create a generosity and an empathy to care for folks. And this is a way we do that, express that. Uh, there's a couple of things going on this week. Let's touch some of these slides. First, we're looking for Kids Hope Mentors. Spend an hour a week, we'll have support and training, but you can be a stable presence in the life of a child in a local elementary school. Uh, Dawn Housecamp is the one who heads that up. Um, I'm always intrigued to know how many folks in celebration are doing that. I know Mary Lynn is uh, mentoring with a Kids Hope. If you've ever mentored a Kids Hope child, I'm going to ask you to just kind of Carefully raise your hand. How many folks? Yeah, there's some here. You see hands go up in different places. Thank you. What I want you to realize is that God uses each of us with gifts and availability. Kids Hope is a great way to plug in. Next thing is the Hope Christmas store. Again, we're gathering kids, I'm sorry, toys for kids. You'll see information uh, out in the hallway. We need to have that in by this Wednesday, those gifts, so they can be set up. And again, we help provide uh, toys, clothes, things like that. Uh, Beginning this Wednesday, going through Advent, uh, Pastor Darwin will be doing a brief focus service at 4.45 p.m. We're calling it pause. There'll be a brief scripture meditation, some prayer, and some communion. It's way in the busy time of Advent. That's not what our world calls it, but in this busy time leading up to Christmas, you can take a moment pause, refocus. So come to pause, be a part of dinner that follows. And then uh, particularly adults, there's the dialogue, which is an adult group. We're reading through a book together, uh, make a brief presentation. So you don't even have to prepare, just come. So pause, dinner, and then dialogue. Almost sounds like fun. It's good to be together. And here we are, the songs and scriptures of Christmas next Sunday evening at 5.30. We'll gather here. You'll get to sing about two verses of every Christmas carol you've ever loved. And we'll read through the scripture together in that way. I had a moment during our Thursday Thanksgiving service. Um, Thanksgiving, I always connected my mind to the pilgrims, those who had come over from England and started the Plymouth Colony. I've done a good deal of study. They're fascinating folks. Uh, they share with me a profound, transforming connection with Jesus and the hope of the gospel. And we were getting ready in that service to use the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one, as a profession of our faith. And for the first time in my life, I made the connection. The, the church that came over to found Plymouth, because it was a church gathering, they had left England when the government church was persecuting them, and in 1608 moved to Holland. They crossed went east and lived for 10 to 12 years among the Dutch in the Netherlands. And I'm confident because I've met some Dutch people and they all seem to love this Heidelberg Catechism. 
But while that English church was living in Holland, they clearly would have heard the Heidelberg Catechism and had their hearts warmed. They would eventually move back to England and then move to Massachusetts. And that whole providential story is there. But I'd never seen before the connection between Thanksgiving and the Dutch tradition with the Heidelberg Catechism. So I ask you, friends, and how this would have rung in the ears of the Plymouth Pilgrims, how it's rung in the hearts and ears of people for centuries now. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Advent is a season of hope and waiting in hope. Let's stand and sing together. Uh, it'll be hymn number 244. We're using a different uh, tune, so it'll be up there. Come thou long expected Jesus.
Let's have a seat. And let's go now to the Lord in prayer. Shall we pray? Oh, Lord, our God and Father, we thank you for the way that you have loved us deeply. Fill us with a great hope. Thank you for hope that leads to lives lived differently. Because we see in your hope every broken heart, every broken life we see, we see through the lens of hope. Every tragedy and every challenge we experience, we see through the lens of hope. Thank you that our hope is not built on what we have done or what we decide, but it is built on the foundation of the cross where you would lay aside your glory, King Jesus, and rescue us at the cost of your life. Thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Father, we pray for Heart Awake Ministries that we might live increasingly in that hope and share that hope with the world around us. Guide our decisions and our footsteps. Be present in the power of the gospel in every programmatic expression of what we do. We pray this morning for the preaching of your word, for Pastor Aaron at Watershed and Pastor JB in Fusion. In a few hours, Pastor Florencio right here with uh, Miss Yon. And last night, Pastor Jeffrey at Angel Community Church in Muskegon. We pray, Father, that all through the land might ring the good news of Christ crucified and risen and that there would be hope in that. Fill us this day. Father, we pray too that you would guard us from the distractions of this world. It's such a season of consumerism. Help us to remember that our joy is not found in things, but our joy is a gift from you that we share and give to others. Father, we pray for the, this community for celebration. Thank you that you've gathered us from around this particular geography, from all the different circumstances and situations, ages, backgrounds, hopes, fears. I pray you'd help us to be a ministering community that cares for one another, but always an open community that welcomes those that you would bring. This has been a season of sickness and sadness for many, whether it's sickness, hospitalization, recovery, or whether it's grief through changes or losses. Take just a moment. I'll release you to the silent prayer of your heart to lift up the names and circumstances. Sickness of all sorts, grief in its many forms. Pray for those in your circle of relationships. Father, we thank you that because of the hope we have in the cross, we understand that this world is not our final destination. We want to live faithfully here in light of a greater thing to come. You've called us to pray for those in authority over us and in our cycle this week, we pray for our federal government. That includes President Biden and Vice President Harris, our Michigan senators, Stabenow and Peters, and our area representative, Heisinger. We pray, Lord Jesus, for the institutions and for the workers in these institutions. 
We pray for the Supreme Court, a referee as it were. We pray for justice in the land, for truth and peace. And we know that comes, Father, as a blessing from your hand. So we appeal to you. Father, we pray for the extension of your gospel, not only in this place, but across the street and to the utter ends of the world. As we watch the World Cup, we would pray in this moment for the gathering of the world in Qatar. And we pray that you will draw the citizens of that nation to yourself and give them a clear understanding of the gospel. We ask you, Father, to minister and guide their leaders in wisdom and compassion to rule responsibly for all the people in Qatar. We pray for the migrant workers in that nation that have built and worked and yet are so isolated. Be justice and care for them. And Father, we ask that the Muslim background believers in Christ in that nation will be able to work and worship in freedom and security and that they would be a light of the gospel in that land. As we watch the soccer, make us keen to pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done right there. Father, help us to be a people of prayer. Hear our one voice, our one heart, as together we pray, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen and amen. Well, at this point, I'm going to ask that any kids that would like to be a part of a special reading, uh, Deb Whitbeck is going to come here and read for us. I'll just have you line up. There you go. Don't leave her alone. Here comes my favorite big kid. Good morning, Janet. <laughs> but let's, uh, we'll line up and have a seat here, and you've got some reading for us. Okay, she's going to. Good morning. I think you do whatever you'd like. Okay. <laughs> Today our story is from the same area that the grown-ups are going to hear a story. It's about David, the good shepherd. David was a shepherd, but God looked at him and he saw a king. Sure enough, when David grew up, that's just what he became. And David was a great king. He had a heart like God's heart, full of love. Now that didn't mean he was perfect, because he did some terrible things. He even murdered a man. No, David made a big mess of his life, but God can take even the biggest mess and make it work in his plan. I need a new heart, Lord, David prayed, because mine is full of sin. Make me clean inside. God heard David's prayer. He forgave David, and he made David a promise. I will make you great, David, and one day, a king will be born into your family, and he will heal the whole world. Did you know that David was a songwriter too? In fact, his songs were so good, they might have been in the top 40 charts if they had been invented then. David's songs are like prayers. They're called psalms, and one is called the Song of the Shepherd. It's probably number one on the psalms charts, and it goes like this. God is my shepherd, 
and I am his lamb. He feeds me, he guides me, he looks after me. I have everything I need. Inside my heart is very quiet, as quiet as lying in soft green grass by a meadow, by a little stream. Even though I walk through the dark, scary, lonely places, I won't be afraid because my shepherd knows where I am. He is here with me. He keeps me safe. He rescues me. He makes me strong and brave. He's getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me. Everything I've ever dreamed of, he fills my heart full of happiness. I can't hold it all inside. Wherever I go, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever. Love will go too. God gave David that song to sing to people so they would know that he loved them and would always look after them like a shepherd loves his sheep. And one day, God was going to do something that would inspire thousands upon thousands of new songs. God was going to show his people once and for all just how much he loved them. Another shepherd was coming, a greater shepherd. He would be called the Good Shepherd. And this shepherd was going to lead all of God's lambs back to the place where they had always belonged, close to God's heart. Thank you very much, Deb. Let's take a moment and pray before we send our kids off. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, which is hope and truth. Thank you for the gift you've given us as a people to love and to care for the children of celebration. Be a blessing and encouragement for them as we share life together. Thank you for David, not always perfect, but always loved and always returning. Fill us with great hope, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said together, amen. Amen. All right. Y'all may head off with Miss Janet. Anybody else that would like to go of uh, our children's ministry, uh, K through grades three, now's a good time to take that move. Um, I'd like to take just a moment before we turn to the scripture. Uh, this is... Uh, the end of the, uh, the year. Part of what that means is we're finishing out some financial things. We've uh, interpreted the budget, put that together. There's been a lot of conversation with those kind of things. Let me just speak real simply. Every organization, particularly a nonprofit, faces something of a challenge in moments like this. It's real easy to feel the pressure to, to fundraise. And of course, we've got a double temptation in that we want to fundraise so that we can do big things for God. You've probably heard that or felt that pressure. Well, I want to tell you, for us as a congregation, for Heart Awake as a ministry, our goal is not to fundraise so we can do big things for God. I want to change that thinking. We're about, because we're commissioned by Jesus, to be a people who make disciples. Part of my goal is to help you identify where God's at work and calling you, help you hear the song of the gospel that you can join the, the dance of his great love. We're called to make disciples, and that means to join God in what it is that he's doing. There should flow from that a security in Christ, because he's at work, no matter what the future looks like. A simplicity, because I don't have to gather things to prove anything to anybody. A generosity, because I can think of other people other than myself. So imagine, our goal is to make disciples secure, simple, and generous in a time when we're all going to face inflation. We'll be making decisions over the upcoming years in light of the inflation, some of the challenges we'll face, the seasons of time, circumstances. This is why models 
of faithful people are so important. That first Thanksgiving, I'm just going to touch something that I touched briefly um, Thursday. That first Thanksgiving, the pilgrims at Plymouth Colony gathered in the midst of their own suffering. Since they had landed, about half of their band had died. Feels like that to me sometimes. We've experienced death in this past year. They sat down that day, half of the, not a family was left that hadn't been touched by death directly. And then all of a sudden, as they're eating and still filled with gratitude for Jesus, there's a knock at the gate, as it were, and Massasoit, the Wampanoag king, was bringing two platoons of his best Marines. Twice as many Wampanoag warriors showed up as there were in Plymouth. And what did they do? For four days, they extended hospitality, generous hospitality. They welcomed them. They ate. They did all the things that they were doing together. It's interesting, at that moment in history, there was a marvelous coming together of two different people, the English and the Wampanoag. There'd be plenty of history later on, sadness between Europeans and the Native Americans. But this is a moment that it's working because the people of God, in the midst of their suffering, could express gratitude and welcoming hospitality. That, that's what it means to make a disciple. Do you see that difference? That's our prayer. That's our goal. As we look to the future, there's a lot of uncertain things. But Jesus is good. So as you consider end of the year and finance things, remember the kingdom of God. Remember God's great love. We'll try to keep you informed, pray, ask questions, we'll communicate. But let's press through this together. A pilgrim brand, loving those who are different than us, facing our suffering, generous, welcoming in hospitality. Well, we're into an Advent series at this point, and we're calling this A King is Coming. We're going to look at the coming of the kings. Uh, last week, Saul, David, Solomon, all those who will be in this particular period. If you've read um, through the story this week, you know that we're in a chapter that includes Second uh, Samuel 11, 1 through, uh, 11 through 12. And we're calling this the trials of a king. Last week, we saw David on the way up, all the good things he did. <laughs> this week, we're going to see the other side. And I want to remind you that all the time when we read the Scripture, we need to remember there's an upper story narrative, as it were. What's going on in the upper story, this is a good and holy God who's making himself known through what we call the lower story narrative. This is broken people and sinners. A good God making himself known through broken people and sinners. The Bible's very honest about the sin of people. And so we can be too. Now, if we were reading all of Samuel chapter 11 and 12, we would have read about David his temptation with Bathsheba when he wasn't doing what he was called to do, how he made decisions with consequences that led to death. And we pick up the story right here. David meets a messenger from God, uh, 2 Samuel 
chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. And when Nathan came to him, Nathan said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, it drank from his cup, and it even slept in his arms. It was like a precious daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David heard this story and burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, that man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because... He did such a thing, and he had no pity. Then Nathan looked at David and said, Dude, you're the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your hands. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been done was too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? After all that I did, you struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin you're not going to die, but because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, Advent is about the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of the great and sovereign God taking on human flesh. And yet you had been doing that for centuries as you spoke into human language, your word. You lived and moved through the actions, the mistakes, the activities of your people. And so it was that this story was recorded and has now been preserved across centuries that we might open it, read and translate, prayerfully meditate, study with others, and now ask, Holy Spirit, just as you condescended to deal with real sinner humans in real sinner history, just as you preserve these texts, now, now please use another sinner, me to point to your good answer.
Jesus. Holy Spirit, illumine our hearts and minds that we might be built up in the fullness of your purposes for your people. Thank you, Father. Guard your people from my brokenness, I would pray, and make Jesus known deeply and powerfully. These things we ask in the mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. Some of you may remember a classic film, Alfred Hitchcock, Psycho. A woman checks into the Bates Hotel, seems innocent enough, though she's got her own issues. And there in the shower, the shadow. Do, do you remember the terror? Alfred Hitchcock would say there is no terror in the bang. It's only in the anticipation of it. Have you ever been in those moments where you just know something's about to happen and that's the terror, that's the horror. And that's really what I think the writer of 2 Samuel wants us to capture here. It starts simply, in the spring of the year at the time when kings go off to war. That's what should be happening. But instead, David sent Joab, the general, out to do the fighting. Sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged the city. But David remained in Jerusalem. Gee, what could go wrong? Can you begin to feel that tension? Oh, it was the time to lead the army. But instead, David makes a choice. And with that choice, he's in something of a, a dream state. It's like, ah, what could go wrong? Yes, I should be there, but ah, it's so much nicer not to fight. Interesting. David has made a decision. First, to not be where a leader should be. Leaders are called to lead. He should be leading, but he's not. That first decision put him in a situation and notice, he didn't choose the situation. The situation was an unexpected consequence of the decision. And it led him to a second decision, to act on his inner feeling of attraction. And that had an unexpected, would we say, unplanned consequence. And on and on and on and on. At a time when kings go off to war, in this story with David and Bathsheba, this king did not go off to war, and it starts a series of decisions with a cascade of consequences. David did not wake up one morning and say, you know, I think I want to murder my friend and comrade Uriah. No, for him, this chain starts Oh, I'm so tired of war, I'm going to send somebody else. Friends, I want to tell you that sometimes we make decisions, and they may seem indifferent, but there are consequences and situations that lead to decisions and consequences and situations to new decisions, and suddenly we wake up. What? Mary Lynn, a few months ago, was kind of channel surfing, and on Netflix, she found a, a series, kind of a situation comedy. I think it was called Working Mothers. 
Canadian gathering, and it's all these mothers of young children who are working, and wives, and all this sorts of thing, raising their kids. And she observed something in this humorous setting it was meant to be. One mother watches another mother raise their children, and she says, oh, well, my child has never heard the N-word. And I thought, well, good. You don't want to teach your kids those kind of things. But you know what the N-word turned out to be? The word no. Here was a child who had never made a decision, but somebody made a decision for them. I will never challenge your own authority. You'll never hear the word no. That's a decision that a parent made that had consequences for a child. See, when kids are young and they are doing something you don't want them to do, you, you, you can psychologically manipulate them. Oh, you don't want to make mommy sad, do you? Or you can distract them. Uh, don't put your hand on the stove. Here's a cookie. But decisions will have consequences that create situations that lead to decisions. You can distract a two-year-old, but then you've got a 15-year-old 13 years later. And friends, what 15-year-old really sits down and, and chooses Oh, maybe they do choose to go look for that pornography website that they heard about at school. And yet there's a decision with consequences 10 years down the line for marriage, for relationship. You see, decisions have consequences. A person can make a decision to harbor unforgiveness. Well, it was not fair what they did. And that decision has consequences that put you in situations for new decisions with new consequences. Suddenly, from this decision to harbor unforgiveness, that becomes a habit. And that habit of slow to uh, forgive builds a string of broken relationships. And suddenly, on the island of loneliness, what do you do? Nobody gets up in the morning and says, I want to wreck my life and be lonely. But you know, being unforgiven for that person who honestly hurts you, that kind of makes sense, doesn't it? A decision with consequences. We watch a lot of police dramas, Mary Lynn and I do, and there's always this moment we were watching one set in Iceland. Oh, it was so funny. I, I had no idea. Iceland must be dark 24 hours a day. Because every time, the police are about to find the murderer. They've got to go down into a basement and the flashlight goes out. What could go wrong with this? Mary Lynn has jumped up off the couch and said, wait for backup. You know that terror when all around you there's consequences of decisions that led to consequences from decisions. Sin is like a, a dream state. Oh, what could go bad with that? Don't you just want to kind of reach into David and say, David, David, quick, go be with the army. Get out of the city. 
Don't go up there and enjoy the beautiful view from your castle. David, no, 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 don't entertain that thought. David, wait a minute, wait a minute. He, he wouldn't get drunk and go home. David, will they keep the secret that you pulled back and had him killed? It's like a dream state, friends. And in the midst of it, we want to cry out, watch out behind you. And that's what the scripture does. Because you see, you know the next movement in this story. David has a wake-up call. That's where we began in the scripture reading, 2 Samuel 12. And it says very clearly that the Lord sent Nathan to David. This is not Nathan figuring out, you know, I need to do something for David or there's trouble. This is not David saying, oh, I can't believe I've gone this far. This is the Lord saying, no, 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 time's up. I've given you mercy. You've played out decision by consequence, decision by consequence. Oh, you've played this out. And now comes the consequences of your decisions all stacked up together. And it's amazing to me. The Lord speaks to Nathan. Nathan shows up and he says, "Ah, let me tell you a story. And this story kind of draws David in. We can observe it. It's fascinating. The wealthy man, the poor man, the wealthy man using his privilege to oppress, really rob and steal what little the poor man has. David, of course, has enough of God consciousness left in him to be angry about the wealthy oppressing the poor. So he says, he must die. And then there's Nathan. Oh, David, you're the man. That's exactly what you did. You see, the rescue that David needs comes from the Lord. In this case, it's delivered through a friend. But clearly, it's the Lord who sends Nathan. And this is Nathan's risk. Kings at that time could have easily have said, King David had every right as king to say, oh, question me, off with his head. That's what kings would do. I have the power. I'm giving myself the right. It's unquestioned. I'll exert my will. Nathan puts himself at risk, but what he's risking for himself is obedience to God. That's Nathan. God has given me this word. What will I do with it? He needs discernment at that moment. Don't just take every word that God drops in your lap and deliver it. You may need, that may be insight for in, intercession at that moment. But Nathan's challenge is, will I obey God or will I not? David has already made decisions and is facing consequences. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. Nathan said to him, you are the man. David responds by saying, that's sin. He can see it in someone else. I don't know if you've ever struggled with that. How easy is it for you to see someone else's sin? How attractive is it for you to avoid your sin by seeing someone else's? These are struggles of my heart. 
When I see what I see, what does it mean? What is God calling me to? David sees sin in the other man, but then Nathan says, you are the man. It's interesting, friends, this whole thing that has been going downhill from a king who didn't go out to war to a king who's committed murder, this whole story takes a different tack and a big change because there is a friend who will say yes to God even when it puts him at risk. Think about that. Nathan put himself at risk because he had an intimate living relationship with God. And God was calling him in this moment to speak life. It sounded like interruption. It sounded like risk. But it was life to David. There was a friend. And look what David does. He says in verse 13, Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. Uriah's dead, but there's a deeper sin than that murder. And the Lord points that out. You've despised my word. You've trusted yourself rather than me. You see, at root with David, there's a trust and a heart issue of obedience to God. It shows itself in murder, but there's something deeper. I have sinned against the Lord. David says, and Nathan says, the Lord will take away your sin. He has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. See, the Lord is the one who can deal with that. The Lord didn't say, oh, now that you see that you've sinned, I want you to do this restitution. I want you to make that right. I want you to get to work and make yourself a different person. Show up to a meeting. Take the first step. Follow with Bill Wilson. See what works. No, it begins with this. It's the Lord who sends Nathan. Nathan is obedient. A word of the Lord comes to David through a friend. David recognizes that the brokenness, it's had consequences for all sorts of other people. Our decisions often do. But that consequence at root, at its deepest, at its most foundational level, is about sin before God. And David says, I've sinned against the Lord. It's amazing to me, and I love how the story in this chapter this week connects right in the midst of uh, this particular event in David's life. It includes these two Psalms. Psalm 51 that says, this is a Psalm that David wrote when the prophet Nathan came to him after he'd committed adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51 is an amazing statement about what it means to repent. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great passion, blot out my transgressions. David never says, have mercy upon me, O Lord, I'll do better. He throws himself on the character of God because he does that, he will change his behavior. The living God will change his heart. Verse 5, and I'll just touch a couple of these things. I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, this is why the exhortation, the training, or the manipulation to get you to behave 
different, better, will never fix the root problem. The root problem of your behavior that's hurting people is a heart that's separated from God. And we started that way. That was not God's original intention in the creation. But each of us starts one step back. I come into the world cute but broken. I was the firstborn grandchild on one side, a grandson, born on my grandmother's birthday. But I was born a sinner, loved, hope of generations, great investment, all these things I'd tell you about myself. But I started broken. David goes on to say, create in me a pure heart, O God. And there's, we, we could spend time on this. That word create, the Hebrew has a very unique sense of creation. There's the creation that an artist does, takes perhaps paint and makes a painting, takes what's there and makes something new of it. That's beautiful. That's good. That's a reflection of the image of God in us. But there's a word, barach, in the Hebrew that's saved exclusively for something that God and God alone can create. In the beginning, God created. He barach. He spoke into existence what we see. There was nothing until God created. This kind of creation is creation of something from nothing. What David is praying here is, God, just as you spoke into existence all that there is, so speak into existence from nothing a new heart in me. He's not asking for a rearrangement of his motivations. He's not asking for new instruction, better education. He's asking, take this missing part of my life where there is nothing, where there should be a heart for you, and create in me. Replace that heart of stone is language that the prophet Ezekiel would use with a heart of flesh. Create me as you meant me to be. The other great psalm of repentance here, Psalm 32. And David writes, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. That's what it means to be blessed. If you want your best life right now, get your sins forgiven through faith in the grace of Jesus. It's not about things. We're gonna spend the next month with the world telling us, get this thing and you'll find some measure of happiness. Oh, this is what your kids want. Oh, this will do it. Oh, this will, friends, it's a good idea to give gifts, not a problem. It's a bad idea to find hope in things. Do you see that difference? Do you see that difference? What matters, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Forgiven people can be forgiving people. Do you hear the difference in that word? Because I am forgiven because I know what Jesus has done at the cross for me. I can be forgiving with the people who wound and hurt me. See, my life is not about revenge or getting even or teaching them a lesson or owning those. It's changing the equation of the world by living as a forgiving, kind, and loving heart. Yes, blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. 
He goes on to say, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. The hardness of heart that comes, the sickness that comes, a heart of unforgiveness. I acknowledged my sin to you. He writes in verse five. See friends, it is good news. God knows our brokenness and loves us still. Because he's loved us, we can live differently. The final question for us is this, where do you go? David will write, I, will say, I've sinned against the Lord. He owned up to his brokenness. He saw that he needed more than his own best intentions. He turned to the Lord. Where do you go? Are you open to hearing a voice, not of condemnation, but of conviction that says, you know, there's this bad behavior, but there's something different. If you've ever meditated through the book of Leviticus, <laughs> wouldn't that be kind of like torture? You know the book of Leviticus, all those laws that we typically skip over, but there's something fascinating in Leviticus chapter four. Say to the Israelites, the Lord says to Moses, when anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, there was a regular sacrifice to cover unintentional sin. You see, sin is sin. It's not simply about intention, that, that's a part of it. But don't think that I can say, oh, I didn't mean to. No, there's a sacrifice for that. In Leviticus, but at the cross, again and again, I counted up about eight different times of various sacrifices that they would go through to cover unintentional sin. So where do you go for sin intended or unintended? Denial, it's not really that bad. Blame shifting, it was that woman. Blame shifting is deep in our consciousness. How about rationalization? I can explain it away or, or psychologize it. You'll often hear me laughingly say, oh, I've been to seminary, I know how to rationalize. You see, sometimes all we do is equip ourselves to avoid facing our brokenness. How about medication? We're in the middle of an extraordinary drug e epidemic in the United States. And I understand that an addict has given away their choice. But as my friends in AA used to tell me, you're never going to begin to settle into sobriety until you figure out why you started drinking. What was it that the drinking solved in the beginning and now the drinking is just out of control? Drugs? And friends, we approach things more than just chemicals, addictively, pornography, shopping, tis the season. I often tell folks I was too young to go to Vietnam, so I've never seen combat. But there was a time in my 40s when I was out of ministry and I worked at Circuit City on Black Friday, not once, but twice. I wanna tell you, I've seen violence and wickedness and consumerism and where that idol leads to. Friends, where do you go? More effort? I'll try harder to do right or to live up to expectations. Maybe I'll go down the pathway of shame. Oh, I can't believe I did that. And well, neither can I, but I kind of can. 
You keep doing the same thing until something changes. How about self-pity? Oh, I'm sorry, I just, I just can't. I'm usually too polite to say, I know you can't, but maybe the Holy Spirit can. I can do some things through Christ too. That's not what Paul said. Friends, where do you go when you face your brokenness? And finally, the thing I'd leave us with, can you be a Nathan to a friend? Will you be so committed to hearing the voice of the good shepherd and to obeying that even when it puts yourself in body or in relationship at risk, will you seek God's method for challenging, for speaking? Can you be a Nathan to a friend? There's a lot of questions to deal with here. Will they let you? You know, sometimes a person doesn't want to hear. If someone isn't asking the question, I'm kind of hesitant to give them an answer. Are you a safe person? You know, there are some folks that I'm just not going to let them know what's going on inside because I know what they would do with it. Are you a person who can be trusted with another person's brokenness? Where you won't simply pile it on or use it to manipulate? I wonder if often we find ourselves there because this third question is, have you navigated the pathways of your own heart? You know, this began to really become an issue in my life at the age of 40s. Multiple seminary degrees led three churches to significant growth, and I'd still never moved deeply through the pathways of my own motivations, my own brokenness. I haven't navigated the pathways of my heart. I saw where maybe I committed sin, but... Remember the Lord through Nathan told David, it's because you despise my word. You don't believe my promises that you're doing this. I had to learn to go deeper, to, to, to dig in a way that would let the gospel move deeper into my heart and my life and then change motivations. You know, I really appreciate the collaborative model of ministry that we have here at Hardawike. Several times a week, Darwin and JB and Aaron and I, sometimes spontaneously, once or twice a week, we, we get together scheduled and we'll spend time. We laugh about football games. Um, we'll talk about music and experiences. We'll work on the text and we'll pray for each other. I asked those guys to pray for me just this week. Um, I've been getting a, a, and I'll go simple with this, a sleep treatment for sleep apnea a therapy where they gave me the CPAP and I'm breathing with that machine. And apparently my little app says that it's just about cured my sleep apnea. I don't have any waking events. You know, I'd gone from 23 an hour to now one half. So that's all fixed. But guess what happened? It just took my insomnia and drove it through the roof. I'm sleeping about half as much as I was. So I'm getting better sleep, but less of it. And it's beginning to kind of make me nervous. And so I was sharing that with my friends. And one of them said, yeah, boy, and that just really plays into your sin patterns, doesn't it? Because when you can't sleep, you're going to get up and work. And because deep in your life, there's an insecurity and even a self-righteousness about your ability to work harder than anybody else. 
the fact that you can't sleep just becomes one more opportunity to walk into that sin pattern. I want to tell you, that's what gospel friends are about. They can help illuminate the challenges of my life. They know not just where I'm watching football, but where I'm struggling. I needed that. Because, yeah, I'll do that. You know, Elon Musk is looking for 28-year-old people with a PhD and a workaholic sin pattern who have insomnia. Let me work you to death. Is insomnia sin? Not really. Is wanting to work hard a sin? Probably not. Is thinking that you're somehow better because you can't sleep and instead you work? Does that make you something? It means you're a broken person who needs to turn to the Lord and find hope at the cross. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you take us as we are, but you love us too much to leave us like that. You love us too much to believe our rationalizations, our excuses. And instead, you yourself came. You entered human reality. You paid the price of our brokenness. You ransomed us from captivity to that brokenness. And by your grace, we respond by faith to your invitation to be more than simply create creatures of a king, but instead through faith to become deeply loved, fully adopted children of the great king. Thank you that you have loved us deeply in Christ, that we can navigate the pathways of our heart because we do not fear your condemnation. Jesus at the cross took that. Help us to live deeply and freely, that we might live with kindness and humility and empathy, bearing the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father, that you've, by your grace, worked in us a message that the world so desperately may be trying to avoid, but so desperately yearns for at the same time. Prepare us, walk us through this Advent, that we might see in the manger centuries ago, the solution to the hopes and fears of all the years. Hark the glad sound, our Savior comes. We give you praise and thanks. In the name of Jesus, amen and amen. Hymn number 60, we'll close with again. This, uh, we'll sing of a great king who sent us out. Hark the glad sound, the Savior comes. Let's stand and sing.
of Romans. And now to him, that one who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Amen.